Lord this morning from 2 Samuel chapter 20, verses 1 through 26. Now there happened to be a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjamite. And he blew the trumpet and said, we have no portion in David and we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from Jordan to Jerusalem. And David came to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took the ten concubines whom he had left to care for the house and put them in a house under guard and provided for them, but did not go in to them. So they were shut up until the day of their death living as if in widowhood. Then the king said to Amasa, call the men of Judah together to me within three days and be here yourself. So Amasa went to summon Judah, but he delayed beyond the set time that had been appointed him. And David said to Abishai, now Sheba the son of Bichri will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he get himself to fortified cities and escape from us. And there went out after him Joab's men, and the Carathites, and the Pelathites, and all the mighty men. They went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. When they were at the great stone that is in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. Now Joab was wearing a soldier's garment, And over it was a belt with a sword in its sheath, fastened on his thigh. And as he went forward, it fell out. And Joab said to Amasa, Is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand. So Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow. And he died. Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. And one of Joab's young men took his stand by Amasa and said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. And Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the highway. And anyone who came by seeing him stopped. And when the man saw that all the people stopped, he carried Amasa out of the highway into the field and threw a garment over him. When he was taken out of the highway, all the people went on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. And Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel of Beth-Makkah. And all the Bichrites assembled and followed him in. And all the men who were with Joab came and besieged him in Abel of Beth-Makkah, They cast up a mound against the city, and it stood against the rampart, and they were battering the wall to throw it down. Then a wise woman called from the city, Listen, listen, tell Joab, come here, that I may speak to him. And he came near her, and the woman said, Are you Joab? He answered, I am. Then she said to him, Listen to the words of your servant. And he answered, I'm listening. Then she said, they used to say in former times, 
Let them but ask counsel at Abel. And so they settled the matter. I am one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? Joab answered, Far be it from me, far be it, far, far be it, that I should swallow up or destroy. That's not true. But a man of the hill country of Ephraim, called Sheba, the son of Bichri, has lifted up his hand against King David. Give him up alone, and I will withdraw from the city. And the woman said to Joab, Behold, his head shall be thrown to you over the wall. Then the woman went to all the people in her wisdom, and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and threw it out to Joab. So he blew the trumpet, and they dispersed from the city, every man to his home. And Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. Now Joab was in command of all the army of Israel, and Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, was in command of the Carathites and the Pelathites, and Adoram was in charge of the forced labor, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Alihud, was the recorder, and Sheba was second sec secretary, and Zadok and Abiathar were priests, and Ira, the Jerite, was also David's priest. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Marilyn. Let's uh, pray for God's help as we think about the passage today. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're the God who speaks. You have spoken to us uh, in your word, in the written word of the Bible, uh, through many different genres. And in this passage here, in this narrative, uh, you're speaking to us too. You've ordained that this would be the passage we would look at today. We pray that we would uh, see that as we go through it, as we see how it applies to our lives, that uh, whatever point in our journey of faith we're at, maybe some of us are, are still wondering whether you even exist or early in that journey. Others of us have been walking, seeking to walk in faith and obedience for years, but we trust that in your goodness and your counsel and your wisdom, that this is a word for each one of us this morning. Uh, so speak to us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Dale Ralph Davis, in his uh, introduction to this passage, in his commentary, tells the story of how during his, his college years, he worked uh, for two summers at a Pennsylvania state park. His job consisted of working evening hours at the park office, issuing uh, ca overnight camping permits. Uh, pets, however, were prohibited in this state park. And so the first question that Davis was to ask all prospective campers was, do you have any pets? When they answered with no, he would write the letters NP, no pets, at the top of the receipt. However, not everybody answered with a simple no. Let me let, read to you what Davis says about these other people. He says, some men would wax cute and answer, only my wife. <laughs> they usually said this with a smirk, amused at their clever retort. Perhaps, however, my non-response perplexed them. What they didn't realize was that I had already heard the remark 27, or was it 42 times before, and somehow repetition had dulled the hilarity of it all. Hearing it only confirmed a certain weariness. Now, Davis tells that story because he says, and I think I would agree with him, that 2 Samuel 20 
is a bit like that experience. That is, it's not that the story isn't interesting, but we'd be forgiven for thinking to ourselves, you know, I think I've heard this before. Because in a sense, even within the context of the books of Samuel, we really have. It's more rebellion, it's more tragedy, it's more murder. From what I could tell this week, this isn't a chapter that gets preached on very often, and with its blood and guts and beheading, it's not one that you'll probably find in any children's Bible. But here we are, and for better or for worse, we're going to spend some time this morning looking at it. And I think it will be worth our while. Here's today's sermon in a sentence that God's deliverance often comes in unexpected ways. We'll think about uh, the story through three of the characters. First of all, a weary monarch. Secondly, a Machiavellian general. And thirdly, a wise woman. God's deliverance often comes in unexpected ways. First then, a a weary monarch. Uh, Let's look at the first part of verse 1, which will give us some bearings as to what's going on at this stage in the story. Now, there happened to be there a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjaminite. The narrator narrator tells us that that there happened to be there this scoundrel called Sheba. We'll get to Sheba in a moment, but the first question inquiring minds should ask is, where is there? And the there takes us back to the previous chapter, chapter 19, a chapter that started with our final scene last week of David devastated at the death of his son Absalom, but cajoled by his commander Joab to pull himself together and to stand before his victorious army, even if he didn't feel like it. The big question, however, through chapter 19 is, now that Absalom was dead, who should bring David out of exile back to Jerusalem? David, remember, was from the southern tribe of Judah. His army, led by Joab, had defeated Absalom's army, which consisted by and large of men from the northern tribes of Israel. These men of Israel had returned home, and now they're in a bit of a quandary as to what to do. Should they take the initiative to be part of the entourage, bringing David back? There were good reasons for going out to greet David, better, far better to participate in the celebration of his victory than to sulk in defeat. But on the other hand, many of the families in Israel had lost family members and friends amongst the 20,000 who had died in that battle. To celebrate the return of the king whose army had slaughtered your cousins just seemed a tad distasteful at best. Well, their indecision leads to the majority of them deciding to stay, stay put. And meanwhile, David appeals to the tribe of Judah, his tribe to come and escort him across the fort, fords of the Jordan to, the, to Jerusalem, which is what they do. So that brings us to the there. The there, in verse 1, is Gilgal, on the west side of the Jordan River, where the people of Judah gather to welcome uh, uh, David across the Jordan from the east side. But it's in Gilgal where the tensions between the tribes come to a boil. What should have been a reunion of all the tribes at Gilgal under the restored rule of King David falls apart into adolescent squabbling as the men of Judah and the men of Israel dispute who should be given the lead position in escorting David back to Jerusalem. 
Here was further fulfillment of Nathan's prophecy all the way back in chapter 12, if you can remember that, that the consequences of David's sin of adultery and murder would bring the sword of division, not apparently just to David's house, but to the entire kingdom. So the there is Gilgal, and there in Gilgal, we're told, is this worthless man, Sheba. If you track the reading as Marilyn read it to us, almost all of 2 Samuel 20 is in a certain way about Sheba. Verses 1 to 2, we're introduced to Sheba. Verses 4 to 13, we're pursuing Sheba. Verses 14 to 22, eliminating Sheba. However, after these initial couple of verses, Sheba actually is very much in the background of this chapter. But here in these opening verses, he definitely lights the fuse for everything that's going to follow. Pick it up again in verse 1. Now, there happened to be there a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjamite. And he blew the trumpet and said, we have no portion in David, and we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. Sheba was from Benjamin, that is King Saul's tribe, and probably therefore still bore allegiance to the old regime. But the narrator leaves us in no doubt as to how we should view him. He calls him a worthless man. And the reason he's a scoundrel is simple. Sheba wasn't just attempting a revolt against David. He's feeding off the fuel of this squabbling between the men of Judah and the men of Israel, and brashly is calling for secession, that the northern tribes would simply break away to become a, a completely separate country. So Sheba's seeking to go one better than Absalom, seeking to not only overthrow the king, but also the kingdom. He concluded from the attitude of the men of Judah that in reality there was nothing in David's kingdom for the northern tribes, but in his call for secession, Sheba was in effect rejecting God's anointed king, and so doing rebelling against God himself, which is the epitome of being a scoundrel. So put your feet in David's sandals for a moment and imagine how he's feeling about all of this. In a sense, we don't have to imagine too hard because he tells us in verse 6, David said to Abishai, now Sheba, the son of Bichri, will do us more harm than Absalom. I'm willing to wager that behind that comment was another thought, not again. Another rebellion. You know, I'm not even back in Jerusalem yet, and there's another uprising, but an even worse one. Lord, you, you told me the ramifications of my sin would be serious, would impact my family and the nation. But after the whole Absalom thing, couldn't you at least just give me a little bit of a break? Now, you don't have to be the, the struggling monarch of an ancient Near Eastern kingdom to know what that question feels like. Because I'm guessing each one of us have said something along those lines, explicitly in prayer to God, or perhaps muttering it under our breath. Again, really? Give me a break. There's a verse in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians that often gets quoted, or perhaps we should say misquoted, that relates to the trials and the difficulties that God permits to come into our lives. It's 1 Corinthians 10, 13, and in it Paul writes this. 
No temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Now, the chances are that someone has referenced this verse to you at a time in the past in a genuine effort to encourage you in the midst of a, <coughs> excuse me, a particular trial. And what they'll say is, is along the lines of, well, you know, God never gives us more than we can handle. God must think you're such a strong person with such strong faith because he never gives us more than we can cope with. So here in 2 Samuel 20, we could say, yeah, David, it, it does seem that you've got another uprising on your hands, but God must think you can really handle it because, because he never gives us more than we can handle. That's what Paul promises. Except that's not actually what Paul says here, is it? Paul's focus in this verse is on those times when we're tempted to sin, when we're tempted to run to those other gods, those idols in our lives for satisfaction, for happiness. And in those situations, Paul says, God always will give you a way out so you need never sin. So when David saw Bathsheba that day from the rooftop of his palace, God actually had an exit route for David to escape adultery. The problem was that David decided not to take it. There's always a way out from temptation. But you see, that's, that's what Paul is saying, not what we sometimes misquote. When we misquote this verse, we can actually do harm to one another because the reality is, get this, the reality is that God has never promised not to give us more than we can handle. And you know that from experience as I do. It's happened all the time where the stuff comes into your life. You said, I just can't handle this. I don't know if you've seen those lawn signs that have popped up over recent months that say on them, you are enough. And the signs are, I think, a valiant effort to help people struggling with mental health issues right now. And I know and you know we need to be doing all that we can to, be, to help people who are fighting those battles. And from one angle, I really applaud the sentiment because our society can often make us feel like we're not smart enough, beautiful enough, rich enough, funny enough, happy enough. And so the signs, in a sense, are saying, no, and against that, you are enough. And we might even, you know, we could from add from a biblical perspective to say, you know, you have immense value because you're made in the image of God. But from another angle, in terms of handling all that life throws at us, all the suffering, all the struggles, all the trials. I mean, just speaking personally, here, here's the truth of which I'm painfully aware. I'm not enough. It's actually really unhelpful for someone to tell me in those situations, I am enough because I don't have the resources needed in and of myself, and you don't either. But here's the message of the Bible that comes through over and over again in bold letters, all caps, thousand-size font, God is enough. God is enough. And because you're made in the image of God, you've been made for a relationship with this God, and in that relationship, you will always find him to be enough. So that for me and for you, God actually purposely puts tests into our lives that are more than we can handle for the express purpose of bringing us to the end of ourselves so that we'll rely on him, we'll trust in him, 
and in so doing find him to be so, so enough, just as he seems to have been doing with this weary monarch, King David. That brings us secondly to uh, a Machiavelli in general. If you're not familiar with the term Machiavellian, it comes from the field of personality psychology. It refers to someone who's cunning, who's scheming, who's manipulative, who's unscrupulous. If you'd rather have a much simpler definition, someone just like Joab. Joab has popped up. If you've been with us through the series, you'll have noticed Joab has popped up on numerous occasions through through 2 Samuel, as the de facto leader of David's army. Joab probably obtained his position as leader of the army through family connections. As David's nephew, he would presumably have had an inside track to positions of authority. But you may have noticed that Joab's a rather complicated individual. He's both intensely loyal to David, and he's completely uncontrollable. So he doesn't raise the standard of revolt against David like Sheba does, nor does he seek David's throne like Absalom did. In that sense, he's faithful to David. But while he doesn't try to become king, the problem is he always wants to act as if he's his own king. He's extremely loyal to David, but he's essentially unsubmissive to David. And as a result, he never seems to completely gain David's confidence. He's too much of a loose cannon. As we've followed the story through 2 Samuel already, by this point in the story, he's gone rogue at least twice on David. He butchered Abner, Baal, way back in chapter 3. And then as we saw last week, he's responsible for the execution of David's son Absalom. And as a consequence of what Joab did to Absalom, as well as trying now to win over those who had been supportive of Absalom, David replaces Joab with Amasa, his nephew, who had been Absalom's commander-in-chief. Amasa would be given the job to organize an army in three days to pursue Sheba and deal with him. However, Amasa is not able to complete the assigned task in the time allotted. However, David still doesn't fall back on Joab to lead the army, but instead calls on Joab's brother Abishai to take command. And yet as the story continues, the narrator pointedly keeps referring to the army as Joab's men, as Joab's young men, so that Joab's name may no longer have been at the top of the official letterhead, but he's still the one who's pulling the strings. And that's why it's not surprising that when Amasa catches up with Abishai and Joab, Joab again decides it's in his own best interest to take some things into his own hands. So we pick it up in verses 8 to 10. When they were at the great stone that is in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. Now Joab was wearing a soldier's garment, and over it was a belt with a sword and its sheath fastened on his thigh. And as he went forward, it fell out. That was his intention. Joab said to Amasa, is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. That was a traditional greeting, believe it or not, in the ancient Near East. But Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand. That's his left hand, not the normal hand to hold the sword. So Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow, and he died. Joab hasn't uttered a word in this chapter up to this point where he greets Amasa. He hasn't blinked, he hasn't missed a step, and now swiftly, silently, and mercilessly, he eliminates his rival, 
his cousin. And if anyone had any doubt what Joab's intention with this act was, it's made explicit in verse 11, as Joab had one of his men stand beside the bloody corpse with its guts and all lying there of Amasa and declare, whoever favors Joab, whoever who is for David, let him follow Joab. Not let him follow David, let him follow Joab, because for Joab, it's all about Joab. It's interesting that in the opening chapters of 1 Kings, where the story of David actually comes to an end, as David is on his deathbed giving instructions to his son Solomon, he tells Solomon to finally finish Joab off. Something that he wasn't willing to do himself, because at every point at which Joab ignored the king and did his own thing, David turned a blind eye, apparently more concerned with Joab's overall effectiveness on the battlefield than with Joab's sin. A number of commentators make the observation that 2 Samuel 20, therefore, is actually uh, depicts a double, a double rebellion. There is, of course, Sheba, who wants to lead a secession from the Davidic kingdom. That's the obvious one. But there's also Joab, who refuses to be controlled within the kingdom, but is ever hacking and literally slicing away to keep his own position unrivaled. So that the Joabs of the world will pay lip service to those who are in leadership over them, those who exercise oversight. But their actions demonstrate that the only ones actually ruling their lives are themselves. And sadly, as one of those commentators points out, there are scores of Joabs on the membership roles of churches. These aren't people who might quite appropriately ask for the reason, the rationale for certain actions taken by the leaders of the church. These are the people who are only interested in promoting their own agenda, whatever the cost, come hell or high water. These are the people who destroy churches through a Joab spirit, the kind of scheming and manipulative spirit we see in this Machiavelli in general. So that while we in the church can be so vigilant, watching for the attacks of the enemy on the outside. The reality is that many churches, if not most churches that get destroyed, are destroyed by enemies attacking from the inside. Enemies, it turns out, not unlike Joab. Well, it's the pursuit of this Machiavellian general after the scoundrel Sheba that brings us to our third character, a wise woman. We pick up the story in verse 14. And Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel of Beth Maka, and all the Bichrites assembled and followed him in. Here's what the narrator wants us to pick up from that statement that Sheba has not been very successful in his efforts for secession. That while in verse 2 we were told that all the men of Israel were persuaded to follow Sheba, by the time he reaches the city of Abel to the far north, having traveled a hundred miles on his campaign tour, the only support he has at this point is from his own little clan, the Bichrites. Nevertheless, he arrives at the walled city of Abel and seeks along with his tribe to take refuge in the city. And Sheba may have traveled far enough to be out of the reach of David, but he has not got beyond the reach of Joab who's now firmly in charge of the pursuit. Joab arrives in Abel with his troops, and they assault the city. They build a, a siege ramp up to the walls and put a battering ram in place. And the only option at this point seems to be, you know, Joab against Sheba to the death. 
with the city sure to be destroyed in the process of this armed confrontation. And then all of a sudden, there's an interruption in Joab's plan as one described as a wise woman steps forward. A number of scholars believe that wise woman here should be capitalized because it seems actually to have been a title that represented a civic leadership role that existed during the period of the judges and the early monarchy. It was a role that was filled particularly in less urban and more rural communities by women known for their wise judgment, their rhetorical skills, their ability to negotiate difficult situations, women just like the wise woman of Abel. And so with Joab's troops battering the walls, she boldly calls out for Joab. We read what happens then from verse 16. Then a wise woman called from the city, listen, listen, tell Joab, come here that I may speak to you. And he came near her, and the woman said, Are you Joab? He answered, I am. Then she said to him, Listen to the words of your servant. And he answered, I am listening. And she said, They used to say in former times, Let them but ask counsel at Abel. And so they settled a matter. I am one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? So here's this wise woman who's seeking intently on saving the city. So she enters into these negotiations with Joab. She reminds him that Abel is an old and venerated city. Indeed, it's a, a mother in Israel, a place of great importance in the nation to which people looked for guidance and well-being. And her compelling words automatically just provide the stark contrast to the brutal, ruthless intent of Joab. She describes herself as peaceable and faithful in Israel, a, a mothering voice speaking for this mothering city. So was Joab and the might of the monarchy going to destroy a peaceable city to advance their own interests, swallowing up the heritage of the Lord, that is, the Lord's own people, that's what she means there, the Lord's own people who were his inalienable right, possession? You can tell Joab is actually horrified by the suggestion. Verses 20 to 21, Joab answered, Far be it from me, far be it that I should swallow up or destroy. That is not true, but a man of the hill country of Ephraim called Sheba, the son of Bichri, has lifted up his hand against King David. Give him up alone, and I will withdraw from the city. And the woman said to Joab, Behold, his head shall be thrown to you over the wall. And that's exactly what she does. Sheba is beheaded by the people of Abel. His head is thrown over the wall. They didn't have iPhones then to send a picture that the guy was dead. So he threw the head over the wall as proof of his death. And Joab and his troops return to Jerusalem. It's a stunning climax to this story. And it's a story that really should be better known among God's people. Because if at least, not for the first time or for the last, it's a woman who saves the day for Israel. Let's hear the amens from the women here. And it's therefore a story that pushes back against so many misogynistic accusations that are often made against God and the Bible. A woman saves the day for Israel. And notice she saves the day not through violence, but through wisdom. In a similar way to the wise woman of Tekoa that we met last week, if you remember. This, this woman here uses this well-known proverb 
in her arsenal of well-chosen words. And in so doing, wise words override ruthless policy. That's not to say there isn't a time and a place for war. Of course, there is. Augustine lays out the case for the just war. But it's a reminder of the power of the wordsmith, even of our own day. How when wisdom is harnessed with poetry or song or speech, it can disarm and reimagine and redirect our paths. I listened listened to a conversation on Friday sponsored by the Trinity Forum in the Rabbit Room of, of one I would consider a wise woman of the 21st century, Ruth Naomi Floyd. She's a jazz singer and composer from Philadelphia. She's a Christian. She's actually a professor at Cairn University, Jeremy's alma mater, who through her music and her words has helped so many people think about God and beauty and justice in new and wise ways. In Friday's conversation, she encouraged people to intentionally be looking for new and creative ways to just speak up for what is right. And we need more wise women. We need more wise men who can, by the power of God, use words to help people look at life and look at conflict and look at injustice through new lenses, which reveals a better way than the sheer ruthlessness of a Joab. A better way is revealed by this wise woman. Well, we've got a few more chapters to go in this series, but structurally, chapter 20 that we've been looking at today is is the conclusion of 50 chapters of chronological history that began all the way back in in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. And that's why it ends with this report in the final few verses of who was doing what. Now, if you were reading through 2 Samuel 20, my guess is that most of us would look at those couple of verses and say, oh, it's another list of names, move on. But you would be wise to actually not to do that because they have a very important lesson for us as we close. Look at verses 23 to 24. Now, Joab was in command of all the army of Israel, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was in command of the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and Adoram was in charge of the forced labor, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahalud, was the recorder, and Shiva was secretary, and Zadok and Abiathar were priests, and Ira the Jarite was also David's priests. Now what's interesting is that the author actually gave us a very similar list of officials near the beginning of David's reign. And I want you to look at that list with me too. I know it's late in the sermon, maybe you're getting tired, but look at the list and see if you can spot any differences between the two passages besides obviously the different names that are used. Here's 2 Samuel 8, 15 to 18. David reigned over all Israel, doing what was just and right for all his people. Joab, son of Zeriah, was over the army. Jehoshaphat, son of Ahalud, was recorder. Zadok, son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, son of Abiathar, were priests. Zeriah was secretary. Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, was over the Carathites and the Pelethites, and David's sons were priests. Actually, let's just focus on the one major glaring difference. Here at the end of chapter 20, do you notice at the beginning of this, David isn't mentioned as the one who's ruling as he was in chapter 8. He's still on the throne, but effectively there's no kingly rule now bringing justice for the people. In contrast, in fact, there's actually someone now appointed to oversee a division of forced labor. So the list of officials in chapter 20, it begins with Joab. His name stands in the text where we would expect David's name to be. Bottom line, 
If there was ever any doubt at this point that David isn't the king that we were hoping for and looking for, here it is. That the consequences of David's sin had undermined the goodness of his kingdom so that his kingdom now just resembled the kingdoms of the world, held together by scotch tape by the likes of Joab. David's kingdom, in fact, would never recover, but the hope of the world was never meant to be David himself. It was the promise made to David by God back in chapter 7 of a future king in his line, bringing in a future kingdom that would last forever. And that king, of course, would be Jesus, who would usher in the eternal kingdom, not through the failed ways of David or through the underhand Machiavellian ways of Joab, but ironically through the wisdom of being what we might call the willing Sheba. Now, we have to be careful here. As two characters, Sheba and Jesus, could not be more different, but there is this significant overlap that in both, the death of one man saved the people. For Sheba, it was an unwilling death. It was a beheading. It was an execution, the result of which meant the inhabitants of Abel were spared. But for Jesus, it was a willing death. Jesus went to the cross to die, a willing victim, knowing that his death would not just save a town in the northernmost part of of Israel, but it would save every single person in history who puts their trust in him. So that God's deliverance of us also came in the most unexpected way, through the loving, sacrificial death of God's own son. And with his death, And resurrection from the dead, Jesus ushered in this kingdom that the Apostle Paul describes beautifully as the kingdom of righteousness and peace and joy. And to that kingdom, every one of us is invited. And in this kingdom, we discover that no matter how many times trials and difficulties come into our lives, God is enough. In every situation, God is always enough. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for how even while you're in the background of this story, your hand is so clear, your deliverance is clear, and how yet again you point us to the one who has provided us ultimate deliverance, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is the true king, whose kingdom is forever, and the one who invites us to be part of that kingdom with his of righteousness and peace and joy. Lord, may we hear that invitation. And may we, through whatever trials we face in this life, know that that invitation to that kingdom is what will keep us going. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.